Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, and he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they no, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. Now, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. He, this Jesus, responded, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the little children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then someone came up and asked him, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked him. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. 
Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and he did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired, about five, came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. But they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to them, friend, I'm doing, new, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first last. So we're going to stop there in Matthew chapter 20. So I've told you before that Matthew, uh, apart from the bookends of, of the birth and the, the, the death and resurrection, is made up of five big sections centered around five discourses. And those discourses are the kingdom being announced, what a kingdom authority means and what it looks like, uh, the kingdom arrival, the kingdom is actually here and present and, and active, kingdom action, what that what that active kingdom does and what the, the people of that kingdom are, are charged to do and given authority to do. And now we're moving into what is going to be the final discourse, this, this idea of the kingdom age. What is it going to mean now that the kingdom is here and is um, growing and, and uh, taking its right authority over everything? And before each of these five discourses, there is narrative. And so the narrative precedes the discourse, provides context for the discourse that uh, follows it. And so we're entering into the narrative preceding the kingdom age discourse. Now, the, the kingdom age discourse will be at the, at the end of uh, just before the, the death 
uh, burial, resurrection, all of that. So it's in chapters 24 and 25. But I didn't want to cover 19 through you know, 23, 24 tonight. That was a lot of text. And something very important happens uh, right after where we just stopped. And that is Jesus prepares and then eventually enters Jerusalem. And so it's all sort of the Holy Week kind of things. And so I wanted to break this narrative in half. So we've been doing one lesson on the narrative and one lesson on the discourse. Tonight, we're going to break the narrative into two parts because it's a it's a big chunk of text. And the, the second half, there's a lot of important things going on there. I want to make sure that we have time to discuss it before moving on with the rest of Matthew. So we're in this kingdom age discourse. And so we should keep that in mind as we look at uh, the text and some of the things that we're looking at, uh, some of the, the details and the context and that sort of thing. So <clears throat> uh, I do want to address just real quick, let's go back to 19. I'll pull the scripture up here for you. And just talk very quickly about uh, the idea here of divorce. So there are things definitely about divorce that we learn from this passage. There are important, important things, more importantly, that we learn about marriage and uh, really about human sexuality and, and, and sexual and gender identity and those kinds of things. There's a, there's a whole lot that we can learn from this section here. But, but remember, in, in these lessons, we're largely looking at the storytelling. So one of the questions we're asking is not just what is the teaching of this particular passage, but why is this particular passage, why is this particular teaching, why is it right here? And what's the context for it? What happens before it? What happens after it? And is, is it providing context for something else that's about to happen? And in this case, this particular question speaks to the really to the, the, the family life, to, to family life in first century Jewish culture, and speaks to it in such a way that it, it pairs up what a family ought to look like and how a family ought to operate, how a marriage ought to operate, and, and really ties it and locks it in to scripture and really Old Testament scripture. And going back to Genesis 1, you know, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, very early understandings of what it means to be a human, what it means to be a man and a woman, what it means for a man and a woman to be married and to be joined together and to have children and to have a family. These are the earliest ideas of scripture going all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis. So it's not really just a, you know, a nitpicky question about divorce, but it's really providing a context that is saying, without scripture, you undermine everything in your life. That's the setup. That's the context. And so, as you see, as they discuss the uh, question of marriage and divorce, uh, where it ends is with the disciples saying, well, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to get married. And what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't challenge them on that. In fact, he gives this paragraph here about eunuchs basically saying, yeah, for some people, you're right. So the disciples look at this teaching and even the disciples, not the Pharisees, the disciples say, wait a minute, what you're saying, this is, this is intense. This is a really hard teaching. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, it is. It's very difficult. Um, but some will choose it because they're willing to give up everything for the kingdom of heaven. 
Um, we looked at, you know, the kingdom is like type um, parables in earlier chapters. And we'll see another one of those uh, come up here. But he's uh, just done. The last discourse is how disciples live in Christian community and live and treat each other. And so now this is a, a question that would naturally rise out of that. And Jesus is once again showing, here's the importance. Here's how difficult it is to live in the kingdom. It's It asks a lot of you. It asks a lot of you. And so, again, while there are things about marriage, divorce, family, sexuality, all those things that we can pull out of this passage, maybe even more than you realize, what I want us to see it for tonight is the setup for everything else that we read, okay? So, um, there's some things I could say about this passage, but for the sake of time, I, I think we'll just we'll just move on tonight. Uh, oh, one other thing that I want to point out uh, is the very first verse, verse one, when Jesus had finished saying these things. So you'll notice a lot of this chapter and the next chapter is read text, right? So you might be tempted to say, well, this is continuing the discourse from uh, chapter 18. But at the beginning of chapter 19, it says, when, Gen when Jesus had finished saying these things, that's letting you know a, a, an act has ended, right? Remember, that's our signifier in Matthew that one of these discourses has ended and we're now moving into something new. And so the that um, phrase there at the beginning of Matthew 19 lets us know, no, this is not part of that previous discourse. This is now narrative that we're moving in. And you see that though it's a lot of red text, it's broken up by narrative, people moving in and out and moving around and different crowds of people, different actors coming in. You have the Pharisees, you have these children here. And so this children section here, it's very short, but it's a callback to all the thinking of uh, the idea of children in the previous chapters. So I'm not going to rehash everything that we said about children before, but just in short to say children were not regarded in the first century like we regard them today. In fact, we regard them today in such high regard, largely because of the teachings of Christ and, and the principles of Jesus and the church. But in the first century, children were not highly regarded. They did not have a place of status. They did not have a place of honor. And so uh, Jesus is saying, hey, don't, don't bother them. They want to come see me and you need to be more like them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, these who are totally dependent on me, these who have no one to protect them, these who have no power, who have no authority of their own. I'm the only one, Jesus says, who can give them actual uh, authority and protection in this world. So these two ideas, this idea that the teachings of scripture are um, so intense, they undermine even the most basic parts of your life if you don't follow them. And this reminder that we should be entirely dependent, just like children are, that sets us up now for the story of the rich young ruler. So um, let's, let's walk through that uh, just a little bit. So we can learn a lot about this rich young ruler. We don't know much about him. He's young, so um, and he's ruling over something. So that that says that he's um, probably late twenties, thirties, something like that. And um, we can learn a lot about him, though, by the question that he asks. He says, "Teacher." So first of all, we notice with what regard he holds Jesus. He doesn't call him. Uh, Lord, he doesn't call him most holy or any kind of thing like that. He calls him teacher. 
So he's coming to him looking for knowledge. He's looking for information. And he says, what good must I do to have eternal life? Let's focus on this phrase, eternal life, for just a second. When we hear the phrase eternal life as 21st century American Christians, what we think of is living forever, living in heaven, you know, with God. Uh, honestly, a lot of our ideas about heaven and hell, a lot of it comes from, from Dante. A lot of it comes from, from Renaissance paintings, from uh, Michelangelo's creation of Adam and these kinds of things that have uh, sort of entered our culture. A lot of our, when you, when you hear the word heaven, the image that sort of pops into your mind is probably more influenced by, by popular culture over the last few hundred years, more than it is by actual scripture. A lot of scripture talks about a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new creation, that uh, all of this will be wiped away and um, that there'll be a new creation. We think about, um, well, because of Jesus, our soul will live forever. Well, you know, kind of every religion teaches that your soul will live forever. Uh, what Christianity teaches is that there will be a bodily resurrection. When Jesus resurrects, it's a bodily resurrection and it's a new body. So much that uh, people had trouble kind of recognizing him in different contexts and weren't sure if it was him. Some of that, no doubt, was the, the surprise of seeing Jesus walking around. But some of it might have been he was a little unrecognizable. There was some glory to it. There was some brightness to it, some glow to it that kept them from really recognizing who he was. And so when we think about eternal life, we think about our soul living forever and in some cloudy heaven. But that's not necessarily the, the picture that scripture uh, paints in most places. And this idea of eternal life, this idea of, uh, of some kind of uh, soul, spirity afterlife was certainly not something that a, that a Jew thought about much. There were Jews that believed in the resurrection, like the Pharisees, and there were Jews that did not believe in a resurrection, like the Sadducees. Uh, most uh, modern day Jews, if you talk to them, they, they don't have much affinity for the afterlife. Everything's sort of focused on on this life. Some even uh, believing Jews think, well, this is all you get, and, and you're, you're to do that and, and honor God with your living. And um, you could you can make a case for that from just purely Old Testament scripture. You can't really make a case for that once you include New Testament. But even um, in light of the New Testament, a lot of Old Testament passages seem to point to more than just living the, the, the one life that we have here on earth. And so here's this guy. We don't know his religious persuasion. What does he mean by eternal life? Does he mean a resurrection, living forever, strumming a harp on some cloud somewhere? Well, the, the idea of eternal life to a first century Jew was not necessarily about living forever, although it kind of included that. The idea of eternal uh, was really about the idea of, of being blessed, the idea uh, that uh, the idea of being ideal. So, uh, you know, Plato, the philosopher, had this thought that you know every chair you've ever seen is an attempt to create the perfect chair. And somewhere uh, in some in some maybe just a philosophical place, there's some perfect chair, and every chair that's created is a little imperfect, but it's an attempt to to make that perfect chair. And everyone is just sort of an attempt to get there. So in Plato's thinking, these chairs, these are all, you know, temporal chairs. They're they're here in the physical world and they'll they'll break down, they'll decay, they're they're imperfect, they have flaws, they're not exactly symmetrical, these kinds of things. But but that 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 ideal chair, well that's the eternal chair, right? Which may or may not even exist, but it's eternal because it's so ideal, it's the ideal, therefore it kind of goes on forever. So when you see this phrase eternal life, it's not just about living forever, but it's about living a blessed life, living a life where everything is ideal. 
Living a life where uh, everything is going well, where you always are happy, you always have joy. It's kind of a utopia kind of thing. So even a lot of pagans today, even a lot of non-Christian people today are excited to live an eternal life. Maybe not living forever, but they are definitely trying to think, how can, how can I live the best life that I can? If you ask a lot of unchristian people, what's the goal of life? What's the meaning of life? And you stick a microphone on their face, nearly all of them will say to be happy or to make other people happy or, or to, to, you know, to love each other, that kind of thing, right? So uh, this idea of eternal life is not just about living forever, but it's about living the blessed life, okay? So when he asks about this, he's not just asking about salvation. It's not a question about salvation. He's wanting to know, hey, how can I live the good life? That's really the question that he's asking. And notice exactly how he asks it. He says, what good must I do? So there's a couple of things that are happening here. Here you have someone who clearly is wealthy. We learned that from the story and obviously is somehow related to, to Jewish thought, Jewish religion. It just says someone came up. We find he's a rich young ruler. He's interested in Jewish teaching, so we assume he's Jewish. Um, but he says, what good must I do to have eternal life? So first of all, he's thinking, I can do enough good to get the blessed life. If I just do enough good, I'll make it. If I'll do the right good things, I'll get, I'll get there. I'll have, I'll have a blessed life. He thinks that this is a great question. He thinks that this is a really smart question. This is the real question that people ought to ask about their lives to set their life on the right track to be successful and have everything they want in life. And I mean, you know, Jesus talks about having life and life abundant, life to the full. Hey, that sounds pretty good. So how do I get that? How do I get this full life? That's what I want to know. This guy asks. Uh, remember, this comes just after the divorce uh, uh, discussion, <laughs> which ends in, hey, some people, some people can't do it because it's a real, it's a really hard ask what you're being asked to stay faithful to. So uh, he says, what good must I do? So that's the other thing is it's uh, human centric. It's I centric. What good must I do in order to have eternal life? So he thinks that he can do enough good and he thinks that it's going to be him doing it. So look how Jesus treats the question. First, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? Why do you come to me about this, about what is good? And he says, there's only one who is good. Well, who's the one who is good? Well, that's God, of course. And who is Jesus? Well, he's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. So Jesus is hinting at him. He's giving him a chance. You're asking me about what's good. Is that because you know that I am the one who is good? He doesn't state it explicitly, but he gives him an opening. Ruler doesn't seem to provide any response. So Jesus continues, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is playing his game. Jesus is not giving him the answer he needs. He's giving him the answer he's looking for. So he's not telling him how to find eternal life. What he's telling him is the answer to his question. What good must you do to have eternal life? Well, I'll tell you, you got to keep the commandments. Now, when we think about the Old Testament, we think about the Ten Commandments. Well, there's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. So what Jesus is basically telling this guy is, now you got to keep all of them. 
Um, I mean, 600 something commandments to, to quote the old um, uh, stand up routine. It's like you can't hardly move without getting busted, right? <laughs> you got to break one of them, right? So if you want to enter, enter in, into life, uh, just keep the commandments, Jesus says. So I love how this guy follows it up. He says, well, which ones? <laughs> I mean, we, we, I mean, we laugh at him, but don't we do the same thing? Well, I can follow those commandments. I'm not following that commandment. Uh, that's not for me. I'll follow that one. Oh, but not for that one. We do it all the time. We pick and choose which commandments we think we're going to follow, which ones we aren't. Sometimes we provide justification or sometimes we, we, we convince ourselves or some historical or whatever, you know. Sometimes we just don't want to do it. Sometimes we don't think we can do it. Well, I can't really do that one, but I'll do these others. I'll do them real good. It'll make up for the fact that I'm completely breaking this one over here. So which ones? The young ruler asks Jesus. So Jesus, and you'll notice uh, in the on screen here that uh, here in verse 18, Jesus's response, it's in italics. Why is that? Well, it's because he's quoting. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. What's he quoting? Oh, the Old Testament, obviously. All but one of these come from what? The Ten Commandments, the top ten. <laughs> Jesus is basically saying, let's see if you can make it through the top ten before we get to the other 590-something, right? So let's see if you can make it through the top ten. And love your neighbor as yourself, that's not from the Ten Commandments, but you know, as we've seen in other passages uh, as you will see in other passages in the gospel, this is uh, one of the two greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, th those two commandments are, were the sort of the top in Judaism, the Shema and this love your neighbor as yourself. And so what he's saying is, hey, here's the, here's the essentials. Here's the ABCs. We're not even going to get down into the nitpicky stuff. Can you do these? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I've kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? So here's what I find interesting about these uh, particular commands that Jesus quotes. Um, they are from the Ten Commandments, but he they're not, it's not all ten. It's just certain ones from the Ten Commandments. Note the ones that he leaves out. He leaves out the one about having no other God before me which is about idolatry or having a graven image, which is also about idolatry, such as the image of the other king that would be on the coins that this man has a lot of, apparently. Um, doesn't include taking the Lord's name in vain. Doesn't include the Sabbath. Doesn't include coveting. So Jesus kind of sets him up and go, kind of goes with the easy ones first. We don't murder. Hey, I've, I'm good. I haven't murdered anybody this week, right? Oh, okay. I also don't covet, right? So, um, so Jesus' answer that he gives after this, where he says, well, look, if you want to be perfect, and, and remember, this is perfect in the going all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount idea of perfect. Uh, it doesn't really mean flawless so much as it means complete, right? If I, in 21st century America, say my teeth are perfect, that means that they're straight and they're white and they're, they're even and they're not chipped or broken. They don't have any cavities, right? Uh, in, in in Song of Solomon, when it says her teeth are perfect, it means that she has all of them. That's what it means, right? Uh, so the idea of perfect is having everything that you need, be, is being complete, not wanting for anything. And so when Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, what he's saying is, if you want to be 
totally complete, if you want to have that blessed life, if you want to have completely everything, go sell your belongings, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, this is not a specific command that he gives to anyone else. It'd be great if we all did this. In fact, we see a lot of people doing something toward this, at least in the book of Acts in the early church. But he's giving this specific command to this particular young man because his answer, again, is related to the first question that he asks. What good must I do? What, what, what do I have to do? And so Jesus's answer is really kind of an impossible answer for this guy. And Jesus knows that. Jesus doesn't say it thinking, hey, maybe you'll do it. Jesus knows I can't do this, which is the, that's the answer to the question. What good can you do to inherit eternal life? Uh, not enough. That's the, that's the answer. Forget it. You're going down the wrong path. If that's the question you're asking, you're headed the wrong direction. Jesus's answer, which grieves the young ruler, shows that the young ruler is coveting by wanting to keep his wealth. And it shows that um, he doesn't love his neighbor by not helping the poor. Shows his love for wealth was idolatry. Uh, and shows that he probably wasn't keeping the Sabbath. Somebody who was rich in this time period was probably working seven days a week. So maybe he wasn't keeping the Sabbath, or maybe he had people that he was ruling over that they were working on the Sabbath. And maybe he kept the Sabbath, but he didn't let them keep it because he had to make his money. I mean, we don't know that, but that could be possible. And so by showing all the other commandments that he has to obey, by Jesus giving him this one answer that sort of contains all of those in one, it shows that... Um, you know, maybe he didn't really keep all those other commandments, uh, really. Maybe he wasn't honoring his father and mother. Maybe he didn't love his neighbor as himself if he's unable to do this. So um, so the man grieves and goes away sorrowfully. Now, what happened after that? Well, we don't know. He may have gone away grieving sorrowfully sold all his possessions, given the money to the poor, and rejoined the disciples and followed Jesus. He may have done that. Uh, the story doesn't really suggest that he is going to do that or that he would do that, but he, he may have done that. That's not the point. The point is, uh, what would we do if we're presented with the same thing when we come to Jesus and say, hey, what do I have to do to get on your good side? Jesus is going to reply with an impossible answer. Why? Because there's no amount of good we could do to inherit eternal life. Once sin has happened in life, the wages of sin is death. There's, there's no good you do to undo that. There's no good that can be done by us. And as long as our religion is us-centric, is me-centric, I'm going to be wildly off the path. So this story is about idolatry, and it is about this man holding on to something that he refuses to let go of. But more than that, it's about the fact that the man has put himself at the center of his own salvation, at the center of his own blessed life. And Jesus gives him an answer to his question that he asks, because he asks the wrong question. This man depended on his wealth in the same way that the Pharisees depended on their works, and the interpretation of the law. See how now this starts to relate back to this divorce discussion that was just had a few paragraphs ago. There's only one who is good, and it's Jesus. It's not 
the rich people. It's not Pharisees. This is something that would have been problematic for the disciples. We see them scratching their head at that because, um, I mean, common sense tells you if you do well, then you'll have blessings in life, right? A lot of um, television preachers preach this, right? Pray these prayers, do these holy things, send us this money, and you'll receive this blessed life. Call it the, the, the health and wealth, the prosperity gospel. And Jesus is just ripping that idea to shreds in this story. It really pits works against faith. The Bible is very clear. There are works that we were created in advance to do. That a faith without works is dead, says James. So it's clear that we will spend our time doing works. It's, it's clear that we are meant to do works. It's clear that we're commanded to do works and that we should obey the command to do the works that we've been asked to do. But if you think that your works will save you, you are in error. And that's the point of Jesus's answer. If you think that there's good that you can do, you are in error. It's not possible. So just as the disciples say about the divorce question, well, if this is the way people have to live, it's better not to get married. They say the same about the rich young ruler. Well, if rich people can't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who's got a shot? Who has a chance? They're the blessed ones. If they can't get more blessed, then, then what chance does anybody have? In pitting works against faith, Jesus is reminding us of the central theme, of the gospel of Matthew, religion versus discipleship. It's not about the good you do. It's about who you follow. It's not about the good you do. It's about the good I do, Jesus says. It's not about what you do. It's about to whom you belong. And so uh, he ends all this with saying that it's not whether you're in or out, but it's about being last or first. Um, so Jesus's main point in all this, of course, is to say it is impossible to do enough good to get into heaven, to have that eternal life. It's impossible to do enough good, but thanks be to God, God makes it possible. God's the one who lets you have eternal life, who makes it possible for you to have eternal life. The economy of the kingdom of God is discipleship, not religion, not even works. There will be religion. There will be lots of works. That's not the economy. That's not what it's based on. It's based on following Jesus, trusting and following Jesus. It's about faith in Christ. That's what discipleship is. It's about faith. Faith is not a warm fuzzy. Faith is um, not something, it's not an emotion. It's, it's a decision. And we, we have to, to make it every day. We have to make it all day. Will I trust Jesus? Will I trust uh, Jesus when... Um, when he gives me these commandments? Will I trust Jesus with my money? Will I trust Jesus with my decision-making? Will I trust Jesus with my character? Will I trust Jesus in, in resisting temptation? That's what discipleship is about, trusting and following Jesus and helping other people to trust and follow Jesus. So the economy of the kingdom of God is discipleship. It's not good works, and it's certainly not earthly blessings. And so this challenged that present thinking. 
And this leads Jesus, of course, to talk about the first being last and the last being first, which brings us to the parable of the vineyard workers. So once again, as we look at the scripture, as we move into Matthew 20 here, um, it begins, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, we just went through an entire discourse a few chapters ago of the kingdom of heaven is like this and that. Why isn't this parable with those? Well, that's the question. That's the very question we ought to be asking. Here's a parable that seems to fit the mold of all these other kingdom is like parables a little while ago. Why is this one separate? Well, it's because of all the context that's going on here. So remember, these stories are not just kind of stitched together and thrown together uh, because um, they're in chronological order or anything like that. Matthew is making a case to his first century Jewish audience. And so coming out of the question of a divorce and talking about how your entire life will be disrupted by keeping the commands of scripture and in showing this parable of the rich young ruler that's saying there is no amount of good you can do and that it is not based on your works, but rather it is because God makes it possible, brings us the parable of the vineyard workers. And so that's why this parable is here. And so uh, in the parable, each worker is paid the same. They're paid a denarius, which is the, a coin that was considered a day's wage of the time. The workday, in your version that you're reading, I was reading from Christian Standard Bible. You may be reading in um, your um, some other version where it uses that, the hours of the day rather than like a, a modern time. And so you would have you know the first hour and the 12th hour. Well, the first hour is about 6 a.m. The 12th hour would be 6 p.m., right? And so you had a 12-hour workday, basically from sunup to sundown. This was the work day. And if you worked the day, then you made a denarius. So what you see is a vineyard worker going out and getting hired day labor. So these are not people that are, you know, um, living on his compound or anything like that. He's going out, he's finding day laborers. This is very similar to what happens today. Uh, go down to um, uh, places like um, you know, Lowe's and Home Depot and Offens, you will see day laborers that are there to do contract jobs. And you will see people that will drive up and say, hey, I need an electrician and a plumber today. And you'll see people jump in, hop in the truck and they'll go off and they'll do work. Uh, we have some more sophisticated ways of, of doing things like that now and hiring contract laborers, but you see the very same thing happening today that happened in the first century. We, we often think that we are very unlike the people that uh, scripture is writing about or writing to. Uh, we have a lot more in common with them than we often think we do. So the vineyard is hiring these day laborers and the ones that he goes out and gets at the beginning of the day, he's going to pay them a denarius. That's the fair wage for a day's work. He uh, bargains with them early in the day. I'll pay you a denarius for today's work. They agree and they begin working. So he goes out at uh, later and later throughout the day, all the way up to 5 p.m., all the way to really an hour before the work is done. And so the last people who show up really only work for an hour. So they don't do a whole lot. So when he goes to pay everyone for the day's work, he starts with those who showed up last, those who had only been working an hour. And he gives them a denarius, the payment for a day's wage. So those who had been working a full day think, well, they've only been here for an hour. We've been here for 12. Maybe we'll get 12 denarii. Maybe that's what we'll get. But when they uh, the, the, the paymaster comes to them, they only get one denarius. And they're a little angry about this. We worked 12 hours. We worked in the sun. We worked our tail off. We got paid the same as these guys that worked an hour. Now, we think that this... Um, 
that this kind of economy is, is a modern American invention, that you get paid fairly for the work that you do. <laughs> you see, this is 2,000 years old. Even people in the Eastern culture ruled by a, uh, a European um, uh, empire, they still understand free market, right? They still understand this idea that if I work a certain amount, I should get paid. Jesus is challenging that idea of fairness. He's not doing it for political reasons. He's not doing it for economic reasons. In, in, in fact, uh, I, I would say he's acknowledging that we all innately feel this idea of fairness in our economy and in our politics. He's using that to make a point. He's taking that very innate thing in us and he's using it to make a point, not a political point, not an economics point. If you, if you want to make um, arguments here about capitalism or socialism or anything like that, you're, you're off base. You're, you're not talking about what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is taking our understanding of, of fairness and work and wages here in this Labor Day, and he is turning it on its head for spiritual reasons. And look what the uh, vineyard master says to those that had worked the whole day. He says, isn't this what we bargained for? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius for the whole day? I didn't do anything wrong to you. Why are you mad at me that I, that I paid them for a whole day as well? You don't have anything to do with them. You're not in charge of their life. This is my money. They work for me. Don't I get to do what I want with what belongs to me? So even though it's a fair and right payment, they are upset. And part of the story is this. They, the ones who worked the whole day are not entitled to a denarius because no one had to ask them to come work. This, to me, is, is how predestination and uh, the fact that we make choices about whether or not we're going to trust and follow Jesus can live together. Because the very first thing that has to happen is God has to choose us. God has to give us the opportunity to, to love him or serve him. Without that, there's nothing. So we say, well, what good must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, hey, unless God wants you to have eternal life, you don't get anything. Thanks be to God. He does want you to have eternal life. And he's made it possible. That's where you need to start from. That's where you need to start asking your questions from. Because the last will be first and the first will be last. So the kingdom of God, the economy of the kingdom of God, is discipleship. It's trusting and following Jesus because of who he, who he is, not good works or earthly blessings because of who we are or because of what we've done. It's about following Jesus for who he is. So now you also see why it brings back that little reprise of the story of the children. There's a couple of little lines about the children that seem very similar to the story that we read before. In the story we read before, it made the point about these really vulnerable people being totally dependent on Jesus. Jesus, uh, Matthew gives you that little reprise right before the story to remind you about the really vulnerable people. The summary kind of this whole section is this, like, like children who are the most vulnerable, most dependent, that is to say the last, those who follow Christ, those who are entirely dependent solely on Christ's generosity, his salvation, his grace, his reign as king. Those who follow Christ will be the ones to get into or to get the most out of the kingdom. The ones who are last will be the ones to receive the first things. 
So with our time drawing to a close, I want to do two last things. First, I want to read some of this section again, just in Matthew 19. We're going to begin in verse 16 with the rich young ruler. And I want to reread the story now with some of the things that we've talked about so you can hear the richness of the story that's being told. So I'll read from 1916 to um, uh, 2016. Just then someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked him. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I've kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then Who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you in the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again. He did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around. He said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. Well, you also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers, give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. Well, these last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to one of them, a friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man 
the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first last. I think Jesus is giving his Jewish hearers, Matthew is giving his first century Jewish audience, he's dropping clues. When the Gentiles show up, you're not going to like it. You're going to be angry. But they're mine. They're not yours. And don't I have a right to do what I want with what is mine? Don't, can I make those who are last in the kingdom, can I bring them, bring them in and make them the first? He says that the, the disciples there, 11 of the men that he's speaking to, will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 apostles will do that. Uh, perhaps that's something that will happen at the end times. I think a lot of that refers to what happens in the book of Acts. We see them as the foundation of the church. Um, and many of the early Jews did not believe in Jesus, did not put their faith and trust in him, did not follow him. And so they judged. And all these stories make me think of one last character, and this will be our final story for the evening. The character of Nicodemus. And we read about him in the Gospel of John. Sorry to jump out to a book we haven't studied yet. But we learn about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He meets with Jesus and says, hey, uh, we know that you're, you couldn't be teaching th these things unless you were sent by God. And Jesus says, really, then uh, why are we meeting at night, Nicodemus? Do you really believe that? And he challenges him on his belief. And they have a discussion about being born again and about baptism and about salvation and some other things. And you can tell it kind of leaves Nicodemus reeling a little bit. What you may not know, you're familiar probably with that conversation, but you may not realize that Nicodemus is mentioned two more times in the Gospel of John. One is in John chapter 7, where it mentions uh, a lot of different people and a lot of their opinions, all the differing opinions on uh, Jesus, that he's crazy, that he's got a demon, that he is good, that he's evil, that he's a good teacher, that he's holy. And everyone's arguing about it. And the Pharisees uh, just want him condemned. They want him arrested. They want him killed. And Someone speaks up with a voice of reason. Who is it? Well, it's a man named Nicodemus. And he doesn't defend Jesus per se, but he does defend their process. And he says, wait a minute, we have a way of sort of winning this out, don't we? Shouldn't we hear both sides of the argument? But they, they shut him down. Uh, Be quiet, Hayseed. Can't you read? Is essentially what they say. They say, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures. No, no prophet comes from Galilee. And they shut him down. But you can see, perhaps, the wheels are turning in Nicodemus's mind and in his heart. Nicodemus is mentioned again at the crucifixion of Jesus. There are two secret followers of Jesus who become secret no longer when they accept the body of Christ from the cross. Everything leading up to the crucifixion, we see the Jews, the Sanhedrin, which uh, Nicodemus was a member of. We see the Jews... Uh, preparing for Passover and not wanting to do certain things because of Passover. They're not wanting to be near Jesus's bloody beaten body because of Passover. They're wanting to take the bodies down off the cross because of Passover. They don't want to enter Pilate's house because he hasn't cleaned all the yeast out of his house and they want to remain clean for Passover. It's okay to murder a man on Passover, but not to be around any yeast, not on Passover. Because if they were to become unclean, before Passover, they wouldn't get to participate in Passover festivities. They wouldn't get to uh, see, be seen in their place of honor. 
um, and those sorts of things. They had to remain clean so they could keep their position and their status. But Nicodemus steps out from among the crowd with Joseph of Arimathea, and they take Jesus's body. And if you don't understand the cultural context, you miss it. But when Nicodemus touches Jesus's dead body, he touches a corpse, makes himself ceremonially unclean for days, meaning he'll miss all of Passover. He'll miss all the festivities in the temple. He'll miss being seen. He'll miss his place of honor. But Nicodemus is willing to do that because he loves Jesus, because he trusts Jesus, because he's following Jesus. Nicodemus doesn't have the Gospels. Nicodemus doesn't have Paul's writings. He doesn't have the book of Acts. He doesn't even have the resurrection yet. He only has Jesus dead before him. But he trusts Jesus that much that he throws his whole life away to receive Jesus. In the Jewish Talmud, which is not a Christian document, it mentions a Nicodemus. Impossible to know if it's the same one, but it's a Nicodemus from the first century who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who late in life lost his wealth, lost his position, lost his status. Nicodemus understood what it meant for the first to become last and the last to become first. He knew if he wanted to be part of the first in the kingdom of God, in the eternal life, that he had to become last here on earth, to give up everything, to become a servant first of Jesus, the one that he loves, the one that he trusts, and the one that he follows. So as we are nearing the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you've got a few more weeks still. This question is now being turned on to us with stories like this. How are you trusting and following Jesus? Are you making yourself the last? Or are you striving to be the first? So the question I'll leave you with tonight is, what has the Spirit revealed to you in this text? And how will you obey it in your life this week? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.